Good morning, this is Chickie Fitzgerald. It is Friday, October 17th, 2014, and it is a glorious day in Florida today. It is exactly the kind of weather that uh, I moved here for. We've uh, started our morning in the low 60s, which is uh, so unusual for us this time of year. Uh, but on top of having beautiful weather, we just have a great show planned for today, and I've been looking forward to this one for months. Uh, several months ago, I had the pleasure of meeting Eldana Luis Fernandez at a women's conference in Pasadena, California, and uh, I will have her tell you her story, and the only uh, uh, giveaway that I'll give you is that her past career is as a, a, a master sergeant in the army. And the night that I met her, she well, uh, every day I think in Eldana's life, she is just dressed to the nines, spectacular shoes, spectacular clothes, and you would never in a million years think that this was someone who had been in the military. So with that, Eldana, welcome to the Executive Girlfriends Group. Oh, thanks so much, Chicky, for having me here. Yeah, it was great to meet you as well at that conference, and um, thank you so much for the compliments. I actually, when I retired from the military, um, hired an image consultant because after 23 years in the Air Force, I didn't know how to um, dress. You know, I wore blue uniform and camouflage and combat boots, so. Right. Oh, and I'm sorry, I got the wrong branch of service. Thanks for oh, the correction. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, I started out um, – in the Air Force, but I'll go back a little bit before that. I, mean, I had a pretty rough childhood, um, alcoholic parents, and was a high school dropout. And um, when I turned 18, my father had just up and left, and I came home to an empty house and, no, and a note of eviction and didn't really know what I was going to do. I was running with the wrong crowd. I was not making good choices, and I didn't have a parent to parent me because my mother died of alcoholism when I was 12, and my father basically just oh. shut down. Um, one day I saw this commercial about the Air Force. It was like, Air Force, a great way of life. And um sounded like an adventure to me. So I, I joined the Air Force, um, passed the tests and the physicals and all that, and joined the Air Force and had no clue and uh, got tossed into the contracting career field and started my career as a contracts manager and negotiator. Um, only intended to stay four years. Didn't came in the military with the intention of getting a college degree, so I didn't have one by the end of four years. I had three years of fun and about a year of school, so <laughs> I, <laughs> I thought maybe I better go to school. So got my degree, went to school, um, stayed in 23 years, retired as a master sergeant out of the contracting career field. My career field was called contract specialist, so I handled everything from small dollar type of acquisition up to um, over $100 million and stateside, internationally. Um, went to work for uh, Raytheon and some other defense contractors after that as a contracts negotiator on the other side of the table, so I have kind of a well-rounded um, verse of experience. In my fun spare time, I like to hop on my Harley and take off down the roads and Southern California. It's another thing most people say when they see me. In the military. <laughs> but you do take off those gorgeous heels when you get on the Harley. I hope. Oh yes, of course. Yeah, it must be safe. Not easy to ride a Harley in heels. Doesn't I was going to say well. <laughs> that. That sounds like the title of an, another book down the road. <laughs> yeah, probably so. <laughs> <laughs> well, Eldana, you know, every single one of us negotiate every day of our lives. And, and we do it both personally and professionally. 
And some of us go to the negotiation table already prepared to give up. Uh, I, I say that from personal experience because I, I have sold products, you know, for a great deal of my career. And most of the time, I would be just as happy giving it to my clients as, as to charging them for it because I just enjoy what I do so much. But I know instinctively that I can't, uh, can't go to the table with that. So I, you know, even if no one else was on this call today, I really need this call. But, you know, what I want to start with, and, and you wrote this book uh, really to help those who, who really do need to change their way of thinking, and that, that's kind of the heart of what I, what I need personally. So the book is called Think Like a Negotiator, 50 Ways to Create Win-Win Results by Understanding the Pitfalls to Avoid. So let's talk first about uh, what brought you to write this book. Were you already speaking publicly and consulting about negotiation? Uh, or you wrote the book and that came after, chicken or egg? Well, I started speaking um, on behalf of a nonprofit back in 2006, sharing my story of victory over domestic violence. Unfortunately, I've experienced that, and we were doing leadership and self-esteem workshops. And then I developed an, a different brand called Pink Biker Chick around my motorcycle uh, riding, and that was kind of inspirational and about taking control of the handlebars of your life. But you know, PINK was an acronym for Power, Integrity, Negotiation, and Knowledge. And I, I started to just teach negotiation a little bit because I had a lot of people in the in the speaking industry tell me that that was a skill that people needed and I should be consider using my expertise to help people. So I, I started to teach it before I wrote the book, and then I, I wrote the book um, to have kind of a support for people. It's also on Kindle as well as a hard copy. So I had started speaking first and then kind of wrote the book and developed the content, and now I've I've kind of honed it a little bit more, and I'm going out speaking. I do my own training twice a year, um, a lot just to help people be better negotiators. Well, one of the things that you uh, lead with in this book is that everything is negotiable. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and the reason that's first is because that's the mindset you have to have. Everything's negotiable when you think like a negotiator. It's putting on that mindset to think in that kind of a form. Negotiation's basically just discussions to agree on a deal, and I always say whether it's a multimillion-dollar deal or where to meet for dinner, it's all a negotiation. And if you get in that mindset and kind of think of it like a game, Think about chess. Chess is a game of strategy. Well, negotiation is also a game of strategy. And if we can get in that mindset of thinking like a negotiator and thinking everything is negotiable and kind of just be kind of light on our feet with it, it makes it more palatable. It makes it more fun to uh, to actually do, and it's not as daunting or, or scary, I guess. Eldana, do you think everyone can be a negotiator? Because, you know, as I read the first part of your book and you, you talk about that what other people see as facts or rules, that the negotiator actually has to have the view that they're really just principles and guidelines and that they aren't hard and fast. And I know uh, just from looking at the people around me, I've, I've got some friends who, you know, everything is just, everything is rigid and, and it, it doesn't have that wiggle room. Uh, even, you know, you think about uh, what time people arrive for a party when you tell them that it starts at 8. 
right? The people who are going to be there right at eight on the dot, you know, are they going to be the best negotiators? Well, it's not. It's uh, thinking about rules are made for the masses to keep everybody going in one direction. And and if we didn't have rules, we wouldn't have we would have total chaos. So, but. But a lot of times people present things, well, this is the way it is, this is the way we've always done it, this is this is how it is. Well, how about getting creative and thinking around that and coming up with a different way to make it a win-win for both sides? Because that rule doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be good for everybody that's um, connected to it. Uh, for instance, I was coming back from Reno from speaking, and Southwest Airlines, we had a big issue, and they handled it very well, and... Um, they gave everybody a $200 voucher, but I've been calling and asking for, like, okay, I had to fly, and instead of going into Orange County, I had to fly into LAX, which is a good hour-and-a-half drive at the time of day because of traffic. And so I was asking for additional consideration. They're like, well, that's not our policy. We can't do that. And, you know, I've gotten a couple of no's, and I'm just going to write them a letter and see if I can get some extra consideration because, I okay, I get your policy, but what you did to me, you threw my schedule off, you caused me to miss a lot of appointments that I had. Right. I was I got out, you know, three hours later. Your policy says this, but I'm challenging that policy because of this. So it's just having that that mindset to just challenge it and stand up for yourself and make it a win-win for both sides. Right. Well, and and that's the other thing that you talk about is is getting to that win-win can't start by everybody being in that box, right? That box of of here here's what the rule says. And, you know, you you coin a phrase here called no box thinking instead of out of the box thinking and and I think that's a great place to start. Yeah, it's you, you have to, okay, we're all in this box, and this is the way the box, everything in the box operates. Well, if you just take the box out and look at the situation like, okay, this doesn't work for the, the situation I'm looking at. Now, this will work for me, and this will be a win for the other side, too, because of these reasons. It, it's just kind of an evaluation situation, and you just go forward by asking for what you want. Right. You also talk about splitting the difference and meeting in the middle because it isn't always an I win, you lose, you know, you you are sitting at this position and you give up to me. So how do we get to that place where you can have that dialogue about meeting in the middle? Well, meeting in the middle doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily always the strategy to use, but it's a very common strategy. It's probably one of the most common strategies used, especially when you're talking about price or maybe certain terms and conditions. And somebody makes an offer, you make a counter offer, you people are at two different ends of the table, and to make everybody happy, you meet in the middle. And, okay, well, for instance, I always use the the uh, example of somebody going to purchase a Harley and say they want to purchase it for $9,000 and the, the person's asking 10 and they you offer 8 and maybe you can meet in the middle of 9 or close to there it's a win for both sides because they should have priced it a little bit higher and you should have offered a little lower you don't ever go in offering exactly what you want to pay because that gives you no place to to move and then it ends up being a lose for for you so it's just about okay each person is at one side how about we meet in the middle so it it's kind of like if you get at an impasse well can we meet in the middle um i actually sold a harley when i was stationed in england and there's a value-added tax that you have to pay over there when you sell things. And the guy didn't want to pay it. I didn't want to pay it, so we split it. 
I said, well, can we split it? Yeah, sure. So we, it was kind of good on both sides. Neither one of us wanted to pay the whole thing, so we kind of met in the middle and each of us took half. Right. Well, and I think the interesting thing there is, is you have to know uh, how far you can go. I mean, we're in the midst of trying to sell my mother-in-law's house and uh, recently had a cash offer on the house. And, you know, we were excited about it being a cash offer, but the cash offer would have caused us to be in a position where we had to cough up about $20,000 at closing. And, and that was untenable. And so we couldn't even come back and meet in the middle. And we came back and said, no, the price is the price. And the guy accepted. So, you know, it, it, I, the next chapter of your book is prepare in advance. And I, I think preparing and understanding, whether it's understanding your cost, understanding what you've got vested in something, or you even talk about this whole negotiation with your kids, negotiating curfew times and the many, many things we negotiate with our children. Yeah, definitely. And uh, the time to prepare for the negotiation is not when you're going to go sit down at the table to have the discussion, Mm -hmm. whatever that discussion may be, whether it is the curfew for the kids or it's the price of the house. So you, you knew in advance what your bottom line was, so you were not willing to accept anything anything else. And that, that guy probably thought, okay, well, this is what they're asking. I'm going to offer less and see what happens. But he knew that he was willing to pay the price if you came back and said the price is the price. Exactly. So when, so, but he had to make an offer to see, oh, well, let me make this offer and see if this offer will work. Oh, it won't work. Okay, it's not fair and reasonable. So it, it, it's uh, you just want to think about it in advance. In my talks, I use the example of a colossal fail and an awesome success. Colossal fail being uh, Shannon Faulkner from the Citadel when she, back in 1995, wanted to go to the Citadel Military College, and it was an all-male college. And she had to petition the court to get in there. And, you know, it was her dream to attend, but she did not prepare in advance. She shows up to the college. She wasn't in good shape. She wasn't mentally prepared for the, uh, the onslaught of media attention because she was a woman bucking a male system plus the stuff that happened at the college normally plus the fact that she was bucking the male system so I'm sure they gave her a lot of harassment and she lasted like half a day and um, then she was in the infirmary for I guess four more days and then she quit but she wasn't prepared in advance to okay I'm going into this situation and I got to prepare for the worst and how am I going to handle this but then you think about a, an awesome success. If you're familiar with the band Journey, they've been around for years, and uh, their lead singer was Steve Perry for like 20 years. And they had great success. They were phenomenally successful. He left the band. They had a couple other singers. It seemed like there, there was just nothing that was going to work for them. And then Arnel Pineda came. Um, they found him on YouTube. And he had prepared his whole life to be able to walk into that situation. He started singing when he was five. His mother encouraged him to sing. His mother died when he was 13. He was out on the streets for a couple of years, but then he got in some bands, and he was singing as a teenager, earning money for his family, and he started recording songs. So he prepared his whole life when he got contacted by the lead guitarist Neil Sean of Journey to be able to walk right into that situation. He's been touring with them for seven years. Wow. So the difference between preparation and not being prepared could be um, a, a colossal failure or an awesome success. That's why it's so important to be prepared in advance. Right, right. Well, next you talk about being willing to walk away. And, you know, in, in a real estate sale or or even, even in, in any kind of negotiation where you're buying something, 
being willing to walk away is something that is really ingrained in us. What I'd like for you to, to take us through is for those people who are selling something and the other person isn't necessarily willing to pay their price, how do you get in a mindset of being willing to walk away, of, of saying take it or leave it? And, and you know, this is my price and, and there is a value to this. Yeah, well, that's um, th- that happens a lot with – and it, it goes back to being prepared in advance. It happens a lot to the point where if you're selling a service or um, something with your company or your business or you're making an offer on something, um, people want to devalue that. And th- because I'm a negotiation expert, people always want to negotiate with me, and I, I have a training that – that happens a couple times a year, or even my book. My cover price on my book is twenty nine ninety five, and um, I offer it usually twenty dollars when I'm out speaking. That's you know a discounted price that I offer, and I cover the tax if somebody pays cash. That's my normal deal, and people kind of want to want to uh, negotiate that. I had somebody uh, offer me, oh, I want to buy a couple of your books for ten dollars. Now, I have uh, a special for if you buy over a thousand books. I can get a really good price from the printer, so I'm able to cut my cost. Right. And and I just was kind of like, well, you know, the lowest I can go for that quantity of books is 15. Uh, and she was kind of, no, I, I only have 10. Well, I was willing to walk away from that situation because I'm not going to devalue my right. products or services. And it's a mindset you have to get into that I I have great value. And, no, this is the price. The price is the price. And it, if you don't want it, somebody else will because there are the, the right fit client out there that's willing to realize the value of what you have to offer and pay that value. Right. And, you know, it's so funny. When I started consulting, uh, gosh, 18 years ago now, I called a friend of mine uh, who lived in, in Napa Valley and, and was asking her how much I should charge because she had been consulting for some time. And, of course, she couldn't give me a pat answer to that because she didn't know my field and and didn't know what the demand and and, uh, who my competition was. But at the time, I I remember distinctly I was charging $800 a day for my time, and that sounded like an enormous amount to me. Uh, But later on, I published my first book and then my second and third book, and then pretty soon I was charging five, six, seven thousand dollars $7,000 a day for my time. And, and people were paying it, right? Because I didn't apologize for it. I, you know, and and I didn't say take it or leave it. It just that's what it was. So talk to me about the philosophy of, uh, and I'm going to kind of combine a couple of chapters here. Uh, starting low, stopping top talking, and and also the importance of building relationships because I think all of those lead into each other. Well, starting low is the the thing that gives you that wiggle room. Like I mentioned earlier, you don't ever want to start at the price that you – when you're offering something for like, – like the Harley example. So the guy's selling the Harley for $10,000. Maybe you want to pay $9,000. Well, you're not going to offer $9,000 because then he's going to come down to 9500 and you're going to go up to – you're going to have to go up off the price that you started from. So you want to start below the price that you're offering in that kind of situation. Now, obviously, for products and services, the, the price is the price. And and this is something I've had to learn because I, I offered my course at a really low introductory price. And oftentimes uh, I'll get people say, oh, I just can't afford it or whatever. Okay, fine. It's not for you. This is a high-end situation, and I'm I'm – 
I know the value of what I have to offer. And uh, the, going into the stop talking thing, when somebody asks you, okay, what is the what is the fee for that? What's the investment for that? You tell them the investment, and then you just get quiet. Feel that silence. It, it gets uncomfortable for many of us. We're, we're uncomfortable with the discomfort of silence. And if you can get comfortable with the discomfort of the silence, that's one of the most powerful leveraging tools in negotiation. Oftentimes, uh, we talk people into a sale for something or we talk people into agreeing to something and then we keep talking and talk them right out of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> And if you just stop talking and let them think about it and either come back with an objection, come back with a no, or come back with a yes, so you can handle the objection, handle the no, or accept the yes, but you have to stop talking to be able to do those things. And right, and I love that you say, he or she who speaks next loses. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I, I use the uh, example of my, I think it's in the book, my sister in the car deal, right? And um, I go back and forth with the guy she had bought a car she couldn't afford, and we took it back to the dealer. They were going to treat it as a repossession, and um, we're going. Me and the guy are going back and forth, and he slams the folder shut, and he's like, "Frankly, I'm getting upset." And I said, "Well, I'm already upset." And then I just got quiet, folded my arms, and glared at him until he said, "Well," <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as he said, "Well," then <laughs> you know the leverage came over to me because he spoke first. But there's sometimes that silence feels so painful and somebody is going to fill it. <laughs> right, right. So on the relationship front and, and building relationships, clearly uh, many of our listeners are in positions, whether they're either in sales or marketing or, or service delivery, uh, all of which, you know, there are negotiations that take place, uh, you know, as you're trying to build business. So how do you build that relationship so that there is that basis of trust rather than rushing into the transaction? Well, too many times in the U.S. we're in a hurry. We're, we're always going at 90 miles an hour. This is like a microwave society, and we want to go, 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 go. And um, I, I don't know if you've ever been to a networking event where everybody's running around gathering mm -hmm. business cards and <laughs> nobody ever takes those. the time. Yeah, it's like, give me, give me, give me, give me, and then you end up on 500 email lists of people you don't even know. And it, 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 we need to take the time. It's not quantity. It's quality. Take the time to connect with people and build a relationship with, with somebody. Find out something about them. Um, Mary Kay Ash of Mary Kay Cosmetics says, people wear an invisible sign around their neck that says, make me feel important. The the primary person that people want to talk about is themselves. And if you let somebody talk about themselves, find out something more about them, then you, you can really listen. If you listen to what they're saying, you can hear whether or not they're your right fit client just by what they're saying, what they're telling you about themselves. I can always I talk to somebody and they start talking about different things. I'm like, oh, this person definitely needs some help with negotiation. I can help them. I, I didn't even have to ask them anything about negotiation. I connected with them on a level right. to get to know them personally, and that's the, that's the important part of it, just getting to know somebody personally on that personal level, asking questions like what's important to you, what's your favorite me time activity, or just anything to learn something more about them and who they are versus what they can do for you or what you can do for them. So, Eldana, if you were training a sales team 
on negotiation, uh, not as the buyer, but as the seller, how would you help them craft those questions? Because I've never thought about it like that. I think I probably do it instinctively, but it would be so much better if I had a list of questions that I could draw from. Well, I actually have uh, a game that I run when I when I speak in some of my workshops where it's a relationship-building game, and it has, oh, I don't know, a dozen different questions to ask on there. Things like I said, what's important to you? What's your favorite me-time activity? Where did you grow up? What what was your favorite thing to do as a child? What whatever? What's your hobby? What's your dream? One of your dream list right. items? Just all those things that we never think about to ask because we were thinking about getting the sale. But you have to build that know, like, and trust factor. When I was deployed to the Middle East, and I was over there after 9/11 for four months, and my job was I had a suburban and a guy with a bag of cash, and I had a pad of purchase orders, and I drove into town and bought stuff and brought it back to the base. That's what I did every day. And the price was not determined on asking the price. The price was determined on you go in, you sit down, you build a relationship, they figure out whether or not they can trust you, whether or not you have integrity, and then, then they talk about the price. We would sit there for 45 minutes to an hour before we'd even talk about what it is that we needed. And then where's your list? And usually one of the guys would take the list and hand it off to his guy, and he and I would keep on talking. I was at each place for like an hour and a half. You have to have tea or you have to have some pastry or whatever, but it was all all part of the relationship building. And we need to do more of that, take time to connect with people, have a conversation before we even get into the business to find out, well, how are you doing? What's going on? Mm-hmm. Or find some affinity with someone. Um, I'm always looking for affinity, like, are you a veteran? Did you serve? That There's an affinity there, or the, the Harley thing. I was um, I just started a women veteran support group at my church, and I had to go meet with the pastor over the support groups, and I was a little nervous, kind of like, I go meet with the pastor. Oh, no, what's he going to ask me? <laughs> you know, I'm not perfect. And um, so I was a little nervous, you know, making all this stuff up in my head. And I go and I sit down and I look around at his desk and I see a picture of a Harley. And I ask him if he rode a Harley and he said, yes, he did. And we spent 20 minutes talking about Harleys. And he asked (laughs) me like a a question or two and then that was it. If you find that affinity with someone, it builds unconscious rapport and and builds, accelerates the trust factor. Mm, I love that. Um, I want to move on to a, a topic that, uh, since we have uh, a lot of women who listen to our show, a lot of professional women, the next topic is about leaving emotion out. And we we are more emotional beings. I think it's it's part of what makes us so successful in business and why companies who employ women in senior positions or on the board are more profitable than their counterparts because we bring our whole selves to the table. But sometimes our emotions get in the way. And whether it's feeling sorry for the other person or, you know, there are a whole range of emotions, I know. But can you talk to to me about what the chapter that talks about leaving emotion out is all about? Well, for women, that is much more of a challenge than it is for men because women, we are more emotional. We're, We're nurturers. We're connected we we work on connectedness we work on emotion 
we have children, we take care of our family, we we do things that our male counterparts don't, and we are less direct communicators. We're we're more um, intuitive and, and can be more emotional. But at in, and in certain times, emotion is is an okay thing to bring to the table. But in a lot of situations, you want to leave the emotion out, and it's very challenging to do. Whether it's emotional from getting uh, sad or upset or getting really angry, it, it's hard to do at times, and it's something that you have to really train yourself to do. And if you find, like, I have a, a tendency, I'll get, I can get upset, and if if I get to that point, I know in, inside I have kind of a little, okay, wait, uh, this is this is really starting to upset me. I need to walk away for a minute. So one of the key factors in leaving emotion out is to just turn and walk away. I need to take a minute, I need to take a break, go regroup, and then come back in. If you stay in the emotion of it, oftentimes you you can't control that. So it's something that you really have to work work hard at. And it's especially great to do when somebody's going on a rant and you don't jump in and get on the what I call the dance floor of drama. You don't jump in with them and, and do that rant with them because that's what they want you to do. Oftentimes people use the emotional ploy as a way to draw you in and disempower you. Uh, I had a situation where uh, my son was having a birthday party. He was turning 14, I think, and, you know, he had a bunch of 14-year-old boys over. And, and if you know anything about 14-year-old boys, they like to just get into mischief. So they were. I have I have one of those upstairs. <laughs> ah, yes. So you understand completely. <laughs> I do. <laughs> well, they were doing. They were. Uh, I had a, a garage that was built uh, a room over the garage. So they were launching water balloons off the balcony, and and then that was fine. And they said, "Oh, well, we're going to go over to the school." Now this was in June, so the school was not in session. We're going to launch water balloons in the parking lot. Yeah, right. They started launching water balloons at cars. Oh, oh no. So, so this one boy comes running. I could hear him running up, and then he comes walking in the door, you know, quietly. And I said, what's going on? He said, nothing. A few minutes later, or actually about 30 seconds later, bang, 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 bang on the door. And I opened the door. It's the guy that lived on the corner. He had a friend with him. He just starts screaming at me about, you know, watch your kids. They're shooting water balloons, and he's screaming and yelling at me. He's all red in the face, and he just kept on going. And I just stood there calmly and said, I understand. I'm sorry. I will take care of it. And the calmer I was, the madder he got until he just kind (laughs) of blew. But he wanted me to to jump in. I mean, he was in a rage. Right. And granted, yeah, okay, I needed to go take care of that situation, but that rage wasn't doing anything, and I wasn't going to get in that with him. He ended up storming off, and I just stayed. The, the calmer I stayed, the madder he got. Oh, and then he funny. left, and then when I went down to collect the boys from around the corner, him and his wife were standing on their property and still hurling things at me, and I just kind of said, okay, I got it, and just kept going. <laughs> but if you don't buy into that, there, oftentimes people use that emotion to drag you in with them, and then they win. They got you all upset, and it'll disempower you, disconnect you, and the the advantage may go to the other side. So you want to make sure that you don't jump into that. You know, now there there's another tip in the book about uh, deflection by rant. That's another you can use that in a different way. But in this situation where somebody's emotional, you don't want to 
you don't want to jump in with them and you don't want to use your emotion when they're doing something to really kind of get your goat and really right. tick you off and see if they can trigger you. Right. One of the other topics that is near and dear to any salesperson's heart uh, is uh, getting rejected, right, the no. And I love the story that you told in Pasadena about this. In fact, I think it was about your son. It's Chapter 14. If it is no now, when will it be yes? And I think teenagers are masters of this particular question. Uh, yes, and then there's the the – famous how to get past the I don't knows, which is a little caveat on that when somebody says, uh, well, I don't know. Well, if you did know, what would the answer be? <laughs> what? What is that? But uh, we need to understand rejection is never personal. There's another tip that I, I teach in my three-day training called Q-tip, quit taking it personal. And no is usually, people say no three times before they say yes. And no, oftentimes, is just a request for more information. We're, we're so, we're so, I guess, conditioned to say no. You think about as a kid growing up, no, no, don't do that. No, don't touch that. No, don't do that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't have that. No, 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 no. So we're conditioned. You must know to my know. husband. <laughs> him, him to a T. <laughs> but, but we are conditioned from a young age. So oftentimes people will just automatically say no, or they they need to, to think about it kind of thing. And if you just have, and it goes back to preparing in advance, those are the objections that you have to overcome. Oh, no, I, I don't, I, sometimes I have people say, oh, no, I'm already a great negotiator. I don't need your course. Oh, really, <laughs> you can't learn anymore? Uh, oh, uh, I, I guess I can. Well, <laughs> You're at mastery level. Why why not take it to a further mastery level? Uh, oh, I never thought of that. You know, you just it's kind of disempower the no, and it it takes some skill. I'm still not the best at that, but I just keep going for it. And it's just not taking no as as final. And that sometimes no is the answer, but right. you have to keep asking and keep keep having, I guess, a different response to their their nose. It's just how to overcome that so they can see the value of what you're offering or what you're attempting to get them to opt in for. Right. I'm going to jump now to number 21, which it really is a follow-on to this. It's about asking powerful questions. And you you talk here about that if, if the answer was either no or I don't know, um, then there are other powerful questions you know, that you can ask. And and I do love the, you know, if you did know, what would the answer be? Um, because that does take people really off guard. And, uh, you know, I think you shared the story of your, your son throwing that out at you. And, and uh, I just I thought that was just so great. So what are some other powerful questions that we can interject into the negotiation process that, that really do take people off that path of no into really rethinking? Well, one of the best questions I ever learned to ask, and again, it's from Mary Kay. I was part of Mary Kay. I'm still part of Mary Kay for personal use, but uh, that's kind of how I, I got over my fear of speaking in front of people. As a matter of fact, I became a Mary Kay consultant and had to give presentations. So um, I learned a lot of great things from her. And one of the things is that that she 
that she always said to ask is, is there any reason you can't? Is there any reason you can't sign up for this training? Is there any reason you can't? And and mm-hmm. oftentimes when you, is there any reason you can't agree to this proposal? Uh, what? Is there any reason? It, it just does a, a pattern <laughs> interrupt in somebody's brain and they, is there any reason I can't? You're not asking a question in a normal way. And it's kind of scrambling the, what is, what? They have to think about what does that mean? Is there any reason I can't? No, mm, uh, I don't have a reason. I I can't find a reason. And you can usually see them in their head, kind of processing that and asking what I mm, I can't come up with a reason. <laughs> so so it kind of puts them off and enables you to continue to uh, get them to agree to your proposal. But there's a lot of other questions you can ask. Why do you think that's a Fair and reasonable is a because uh, fair and reasonable is one of the other other strategies in the book. But it's like, why do you think that's a fair and reasonable proposal? Where they have to actually they've given you their answer or their response. And, well, why do you think that's fair and reasonable? Well, what about that is is fair and reasonable? Well, how is that of great value? Just coming up with questions that require them to actually think about the answer and kind of scramble their objection to where they can't really object because they really don't have an answer to the question. Right. Yeah, one of my favorites is what part of my proposal gives you the most concern. Yeah, that's an, that's another good one. And, and uh, well, I let's see. Hmm. They have to think about oh, if they haven't. <laughs> they have to admit to... they never read it. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, uh, well, I, yeah, I didn't look at the whole thing. Um, well, <laughs> so uh, that 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 brings me to price, and I, I know you talk about price a lot in different sections of the book. Um, but but the whole thing is, if let let's say you give someone a proposal, a, a multi-page proposal, and all they do is turn to the last page and look at the number, or look at the time frame, or you know the conditions, as you said. So, how do how do you get past that? Because you you pretty quickly can determine that they really don't understand uh, all that's being offered. Because you can't look at price separate from offer. Well, then that goes back to the what part of my proposal gives you the most concern. Right. Uh, well, the dollar amount. Well, what about the rest of it? Can we talk about the value for the dollar amount? Right. And sometimes you have to if if somebody's just a bottom line person and they're going to look at that total cost and they're concerned about that cost whether or not they have the budget you know that's another issue but they have to justify let's take the government for instance when I was a, a buyer in the government we had to justify price fair and reasonable and usually the way we did that was to get competitive bids if we did a sole source where we only got one bid or one cost from somebody, um, like a consultant-type proposal, you can't really compete certain consulting things. Some things you can, but there's some things that are so specialized that you really can't compete it. Well, how are you going to determine that price to be fair and reasonable? You have to show them the value and give, give some comparative examples where, well, there are other similar things and and that costs more, I'm giving you a good value. You know, this is that I've done extensive research on this, and here's all my um, experience. And you just kind of bring everything to the table to kind of get them off the price, but show them the value in the proposal, the other things that you've brought up, the things that you've promised, the bonuses that you're giving, that 
far exceed the value of the actual cost proposal that you have. So it's kind of about steering them away from the, the dollar amount and towards the other valuable assets in, in the proposal. Now, if it is just down to dollar amount, then you just have to have a way to justify why you're well, I guess why your price that you're, or the investment you're asking for them is of is of high value based on your years of experience and other things in the market and other things in the industry. You just kind of have to have an arsenal of things prepared in advance to come up uh, against their objections. Right, right. You know, the next one that I want to hone in on uh, should be intuitively obvious to all of us, but none of us do enough of this, and that's listening. Effective listening, and you just say listen up, uh, is actually a negotiation tactic. Definitely, because too many times, again, this goes back to the stop talking. We just want to keep... It's like we don't want to listen. If you take the time to listen to somebody else, you can... You can almost find out, instead of thinking, how am I going to answer this objection, they're giving me an objection, or they're giving me some information, instead of processing that in your head, stop that chatter, shut the committee up, as I say, and mm. um, listen to what they're saying, because nine times out of ten, they're giving you the answer in what they're saying, and if you listen effectively to what they're saying, even taking notes on what they're talking about, if you listen, you can find out the way to counter their their objection or come back with a response that'll get them kind of over to your side if you take the time to actually listen to what they're saying. But too many times when they're talking, we're processing the next thing that we're going to say exactly. instead of listening to what they're going to say, taking a minute, and then speaking about it. You know, one of the other ones that uh, actually intrigues me is number 33, playing dumb. When is that appropriate? Well, what does that look like? Well, playing dumb is is just kind of not revealing everything you know about a particular situation. So you're going to sit down with somebody, you're going to negotiate a deal, and you, you just want to keep a little bit in your arsenal that uh, you can draw on should you need to. Maybe just don't reveal that you know everything there is to know. Oftentimes. I don't reveal that I was in the military right away, um, or I'd, maybe I don't reveal that I, I ride a Harley. You know, depending on what the people say, I sit and listen to them for a minute before I bring up that particular situation. Um, I've, I had some, I've had I have these companies that call me and they want to um, promise me a government contract. There's certain government contracts you can get that the government can buy off of. You know, but it's not a guarantee that you're going to get a contract, and it just infuriates me. They they charge people five to ten thousand dollars to prepare these uh, types of contracts that only give you the opportunity to have business with the government. And I'll get I, I like to play with these people because I get so many of them because I'm listed as a, a veteran disabled veteran business enterprise, so I'm on everybody's list now. Mm-hmm. So they call me and they start their little pitch, blah, 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 you know, I, we want to do this for you, and, and I'll ask them a couple of questions about it, and then I'll say, you know what, I was a government contracting officer um, for 23 years in the Air Force, so I know what these contracts 
do, and I know that there's no guarantee. And for me to pay you, like somebody asked, $7,500, $7,500 for you to write that contract for me, and there's no guarantee of work, I'm no, I just don't see the value in that. And they usually, it usually stops them in their tracks, but I kept quiet about the fact that I knew <laughs> – the, I know the whole government system before, after they re, you know, revealed their pitch, but before I told them anything, you know, I just kind of kept that close hold. So like that was kind of a way of playing dumb, like, oh, okay, I'll listen to you. Let me see what you have to say. Because I, I, I like to listen to their pitch so I can warn other people so they don't get taken in by those things. Because many right. times they do, and then they never get the business. So playing dumb is just kind of keeping part of your knowledge kind of, below the surface for a while until you hear what the other side says and then you can kind of bring that in as a powerful oh by the way i just had this experience and then sometimes that'll trip the other side up be like oh uh hmm, okay <laughs> actually my uh, i that has happened to me but it it had to do with i was in columbia and I had been there for the whole previous day and, and the morning sitting with all of these men from uh, Avianca Airlines. And as they were talking, they, of course, would break off and speak in Spanish. And the morning of the second day, one of them said something in Spanish. And I said to him, that's not exactly correct. And I could see the look on their face of like, oh, my God, she understands Spanish, but she never <laughs> once let on. <laughs> and, of course, exactly. I didn't understand every word, but I understood enough of the words to know that they were off, you know, off of what I had actually said. That's exactly the, the same thing. It's just kind of keeping a little bit of that close hold as an advantage. That's a great that's a great advantage. They're sitting there talking in Spanish, and you're kind of like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> They're assuming you don't know because most people, when they know Spanish, they'll, oh, okay, well, you know Spanish. I'll, I have an affinity with you. I'll say that. But sometimes it's just good to keep it close hold exactly. to, to have the benefit. Oh, okay, let me hear. Oh, I know what they're saying. Okay. <laughs> Well, there are two two others I'd like to touch on because we're we're getting close to the top of the hour. The next one is one I have really struggled with personally, and that is asking for exactly what you want. And why is that so difficult for us as women and, and as negotiators? Well, especially for women because we're taught not to ask. Oh, you know, just you know, be quiet, be. Be agreeable, don't ask, don't speak up, don't do this, don't do that and i think I think maybe in um younger generations it might not be as much of a challenge, but i I still think that uh, across the board, women are kind of okay, you just need to be quiet and stand over there and don't ask any questions. Well, part of it comes from the fear of rejection, and then part of it comes from because we're just not taught to ask and it's not very comfortable for us to ask but you have to get in the habit of asking because you don't get what you don't ask for exactly. and oftentimes we'll dance around it but we won't ask for it and okay so what if they say no they say no you can either overcome the objection or just accept it but you won't even know if you don't ask you have to ask yeah, and you have to ask for exactly what you want. You don't want to ask right. around it. You want to ask for exactly what you want. I want this, and I want it now. Or I want to meet at this time, or I want to do this thing, or I want to go to dinner here. You know, it's not like, oh, well, where do you want to go to dinner? Oh, I don't know. But really, you do know, <laughs> but you don't want to say it. 
it's kind of like, I want to go to dinner here. Well, I don't want to go to dinner there. Well, I'd like to choose tonight, so I want to go here. Do you, is, is there any reason we can't go to dinner here? <laughs> right, is, right. Is there any reason we can't? You know, So it's just about asking, okay, I would like, would you like to come to this training? Would you like to buy this book? Would you like to do this deal? Would you like to sit down for a meeting? Just just be getting in the habit of asking. And, right. again, it might be uncomfortable, but you need to just get your ask on. <laughs> well, and, again, we do have to do our homework before we do that. And and we also have to believe we're worth it. I mean, it was that whole discussion of when I was first a consultant. I mean, even getting out the words $800 a day were hard. And and now I'm charging nearly that, uh, you know, per, per hour, uh, you know, when I'm working with the investment community. But I, I you don't have to apologize. And I, I think that – and I, I didn't see that in, in any of your, your um, chapter titles. But I think, you know, taking the whole apology out of the negotiation is also a really important one. Um, I'd like to finish uh, just because I'm, I'm uh, very curious and I haven't gotten this far in the book, but number 50, and, and if you guys haven't figured this out by now, this whole book is 50 tips – of of how to think like a negotiator. And I love the last one, and I'm so intrigued. It's you can't negotiate with crazy. (laughs) Everybody's favorite is that one, I think. Uh, And I'm not talking about crazy in the sense of somebody who's mentally incapacitated or something (laughs) like that because contracts with those people are voidable anyway. But I'm talking about that crazy person. Like you get into business with somebody or you're – get into a discussion with somebody maybe you're even at a party or you're at an event and somebody just has these crazy ideas or they're going on a rant or they're just kind of i i don't think unstable is the word but they're they're just kind of not in alignment with your belief system and you may feel like you want to compel them to see your point of view but that's just not you just need to walk away from that one you can't get into a situation and negotiate with somebody who has such crazy ideas and they're so set on what their ideas are. And that uh, I've had situations where people, um, the tip in the book, uh, the example in the book I talk about, somebody that I had started to go into business with some time ago. And we had like a 30-day agreement, and then at the end of the 30 days we were discussing uh, continuing that and making a one-year agreement. And she just had... I don't know if she had some insecurities or whatever, but it was just some crazy behavior that just was not in alignment with my belief system. And the further along it got, the crazier it got, and I just kind of thought, oh, no, this just won't work. So I just had to walk away from that. And I triggered the crazy in that because she, when I finally said, you know, don't want to work with you anymore, we're done, she called, emailed, and texted me like a hundred times in a day, and that's not an exaggeration. That kind of crazy will do right. negative things to your health. I mean, it ended, I ended up having an anxiety attack from working with her, so I stayed in it too long. That's where the tip from the book came from. You don't want to stay in it too long. You don't want to think, oh, but this is such a good situation. This is such a good deal. It's... You, uh, James Malinchak, who I work with, uh, says you want to look at things whether they're going to contribute to or contaminate your life. Right. Somebody's going to contaminate your life, that's the crazy. You've got to walk away from that. Well, and it's interesting because I've been a consultant for 18 years, and, and I developed about 10 years ago a model 
for pricing big deals, uh, you know, because I was building in people's time. It wasn't like having products that you have to figure out, but putting people's time in. And when they had me rewrite my work authorization two or three times, you know, the price uh, had to go up. And, and I started building in kind of that crazy factor and, uh, you know, making sure that I was uh, putting a margin in because if, if people act crazy when you're in the negotiation process as clients, they will be even crazier. So um, that that's something that I've learned the hard way is, is that you have to mark things up based on, uh, you know, how tedious how tedious it is to get to contracts. Right. Yeah, and you have to you have to decide at some point whether or not that's going to be good for you in the long run. Okay. Absolutely. There's going to be a little crazy in here. How much crazy can I deal with? Right. Absolutely. Well, Eldana, I just I, I cannot wait to read the entire book and uh we, we didn't go through all the chapters, but uh, suffice it to say that they are all just exactly as intriguing as the ones that we have talked about. And uh, again, for those of you who are listening, the book is called Think Like a Negotiator, 50 Ways to Create Win-Win Results by Understanding the Pitfalls to Avoid. And uh, as you can tell, Aldana has used many stories uh, from her own personal experience, both in the military, as a mom, as uh, as an ex-wife. I mean, she's got all kinds of dimensions uh, that she brings forward to this book, which I absolutely uh, love. Again, Aldana Lewis... Uh, Fernandez. Aldana, what is the best way for people to uh, to get in touch with you if they'd like for you to speak or give a sales training course to their team? How can uh, they reach you? Can reach you can reach me at, at Eldana, E-L-D-O-N-N-A, at thinklikeanegotiator.com. And you can visit my website at thinklikeanegotiator.com to see uh, information about my programs and uh, contact me for personal personalized programs as well. Terrific. Well, thank you so much, Aldana. It has been really terrific. We're going to take a few questions from our members, but I'm going to go ahead and terminate the the public portion of this call. Again, this has been the Executive Girlfriends Group. For more information about our organization, see www.executivegirlfriendsgroup.com, or we also have a public Facebook group and then also a private one for our members. And our members have the benefit of uh, asking questions of our special guests each week. Thank you again, Aldana, and I'm just going to take the recording off, and then we'll chat just a few minutes more. Thank you.